some bill and then I'll swear it in. Okay. <coughs> Mr. Chairman. Okay. If you would uh, remain standing, please. Our, our first wit <coughs> witness is Salvador Gravano. Mr. Gravano is currently in federal custody and cooperating with the government while awaiting sentencing. Mr. Gravano has testified as a government witness in several major trials and will be testifying in additional upcoming cases. Given the sensitive nature of Mr. Gravano's position as a cooperating witness, we have agreed to limit his testimony to matters relating to professional boxing. We appreciate the cooperation of all subcommittee members in abiding by this understanding. Mr. Gravano, we swear in all the witnesses before this subcommittee, so if you'll hold up your right hand, I'll give you the oath. You swear the testimony you give before this subcommittee will be the truth the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. I do. Thank you. You can be seated. You go ahead. Regano, you have an attorney with you today. Uh, Mr. Chairman, my name is John Gleason. I'm an assistant United States attorney in Brooklyn, New York. Okay. Um, chief of the organized crime section, and I'm supervising the criminal investigations in which Mr. Gravano is participating. I've worked with the staff of the subcommittee in facilitating his appearance here today. We appreciate He is represented that. by counsel, obviously, it's not me. Right. Thank you. We appreciate your cooperation. Senator Roth. <coughs> Gravano, would you please proceed with your testimony? Good afternoon, Mr. Chairman, members uh, of the subcommittee. Pull that microphone right up and talk directly into it. You can get it right in front of you and maybe tilt it up a little bit where you can speak into it. Take your time and uh, just talk right into the mic. Okay, thank you very much. We have to be a little bit closer. Try again. How's that? I, I, I think even closer. Good afternoon, Mr. Chairman and members of the subcommittee. My name is Salvatore Gravano. Early in my life, I was given the nickname Sammy the Bull. I have been in jail since December of 1990, when I was arrested with John Gotti. I was his underboss and second of command of the Gambino family. I have been involved with organized crime since 1968, when I became associated with a guy named Shorty Spiro of the Colombo family. I committed many types of crimes when I was with Shorty, including my first murder. In 1972, I was officially released from the Colombo family to the Gambino family. I became a made member of the Gambino family in 1976. At that time, Paul Castellano was the boss of the Gambino family. In December of 1995, John Gotti, I, 
along with some others, murdered Paul Castellano. We took over the family. John Gotti became the boss. A couple of weeks later, I became a captain. In 1987, I became acting Gunzlier of our family. I later became the official Gunzlier. In January of 1990, I accepted the position of official underboss, which I held until I began to cooperate with the government in 1991. I decided to cooperate before we, meaning me, John Gotti, and our acting Gunzlier, Frank Lacasio, went to trial. I testified in that trial and some others. I'll be testifying at more trials in the near future. As part of my deal with the government, I pleaded guilty to a charge that has a 20-year maximum sentence rather than the life sentence that I was facing if convicted at trial. As part of my cooperation, I told the government about my life of crimes, including the fact that I participated in 19 murders. As a member of our family's administration, I helped John Gotti run the family. My primary responsibility was controlling the construction industry in New York. I did this by working with union officials and companies that were owned or controlled by our family, and by dealing with other families who also controlled certain unions and companies. I have been asked to testify here today about the mob's involvement in professional boxing. I don't know much about what other families have been doing in boxing, but I do know about our family. The Gambino family has basically gotten out of boxing sometime around or before 1960. We were involved in other things that made more money. But I have always had an interest in boxing. I boxed a little when I was in the Army, and I picked it up again a few years before I was arrested. I would go to Gleason's gym in Brooklyn every week and work out. Sometimes I would go a few rounds with other people who trained there. I often attended fights in New York and New Jersey, including the Mike Tyson-Larry Holmes fight in 1988 in Atlantic City, which I attended with John Gotti. I got to know a heavyweight named Ronaldo Snipes and his manager, who I knew as Sal. I tried to set up a fight between Snipes and Francisco Damiani, who was the undefeated European and WBO heavyweight champ. Damiani was with an organized crime family in Italy. Since our family had close ties with the Italian family, I was able to set up a meeting with Damiani's people. They came to New York, and we discussed the possibility of a fight with Snipes. At that time, Damiani was already scheduled to fight Ray Mercer. One of the things I did to try to arrange a Damiani-Snipes fight was to reach out to set up a meeting with a guy who was in charge of boxing for Donald Trump. I believe his name was Mark Edis. Snipes, his manager Sal, and I met with this Mark in Atlantic City. He told us that a fight between Damiani and Snipes would sell. Mark thought it would be even bigger if Snipes had a high ranking with one of boxing sanctioning bodies. Joe Watts, who was an associate in our family, told me that he had someone in Las Vegas who could help us get a ranking for Snipes. Watts arranged a meeting for me with Joey Curtis, a boxing referee in Las Vegas. Joey Curtis has once visited our club, the Ravenite Social Club, in New York City. So I went to Las Vegas with two of my friends and our wives. After we had dinner with Curtis, I took him aside and asked him if he can get Snipes moved up in the rankings. Curtis said he could move Snipe up, Snipes up in the rankings of the World Boxing Council, which is based in Mexico. Curtis said that this would cost 
10,000. But because it was a favor for John Gotti, he might be able to get it done for about 5,000. My idea all along was to use Damiani Snipes fight as a setup fight to get Damiani a big payday against Mike Tyson. My plan was for Snipes to have a high ranking and then make it look good but lose to Damiani. I never discussed this with Snipes because Damiani lost to Mercer, which put Damiani out of the picture for a major fight. I'm sure that we would have had no problem in convincing Snipes to lose. Another bo boxer our family has an interest in is Buddy McGurk, who recently lost his WBC welterweight title. His manager is Al Cerdo, who is a Gambino family associate. Al Cerdo is with a Jojo Carrazzo, who is a made member of our family. I know Al Cerdo is with our family because Jojo put it on record with his captain, Peter Gotti. Also, a beef came up between our family and the Buffalino family about who McGurk was with. Eddie Scandria, the gunslinger of the Buffalino family, complained to John Gotti that the Buffalinos had a piece of McGurk. Gotti told me to arrange a meeting with Scandria and Jojo to resolve the beef. I actually had several meetings with Jojo and Scandria about this. Jojo said that he had paid Scandria some money to walk away from McGurk. But now Scandria wanted back in because McGurk had done well and was getting bigger purses. After hearing both of them, I recommended to John Gotti that Jojo was right and that McGurk should stay with Jojo and our family. Eddie Scandria was not satisfied with my decision and kept coming back for more meetings. I got tired of meeting with Scandria about this, but out of respect for his position and age, we had Frank Lucasio, who was part of our administration, continue to talk to him but our position never changed. Cerdo and McGurk stayed with our family. I should point out that the person who was with, who was really with us was Al Cerdo. His relationship with Jojo Carrazzo is how we had a piece of McGurk. McGurk is a fighter, and although Cerdo brought him by the club once to introduce him to some people, it wouldn't really be fair for me to say that he was an associate of organized crime. But Cerdo was with us, and that gave us our interest in McGurk. Our family was not the only family in boxing. Although I do not know the details, I know several other families are involved in boxing in some way. But you should know that our involvement in boxing has changed from the way it used to be. A lot of people think that organized crime makes its money by fixing fights and betting on the winner. That really doesn't happen anymore. The prices have gotten so big, it doesn't make sense to fix a fight in order to collect a bet. While we, we would consider fixing a fight in order to set up for a big payday fight, like I had in mind for Damiani, the money is in the purses, not in the betting. Besides, boxing is a risky business for bookmakers. You couldn't bet big money on a fight even if you wanted to. So the interest today is getting a piece of a successful boxer. Until a boxer reaches a certain level, there is not much money to be made because the purses are small. But once a boxer becomes successful, the family that has him can profit from that success. Now, because of the size of the purses that have gotten so big over the past 20 years, organized crime is more and more interested in getting back into it. At this time, I will be happy to answer any questions that, might have, that you might have about organized crime and boxing. Thank you, Mr. Gravano. And I'll ask you just a few questions and then turn to Senator Roth and my colleagues. Uh, you, you state here that uh, you 
quote, you couldn't bet big money on a fight even if you wanted to, end quote. What do you call big money? I would imagine from anywhere from 40, 50,000 and up. You can't, you can't place bets any, any larger than $30,000, $40,000 on a fight today? Not with bookmakers in the street, no. They probably wouldn't take that kind of action. And has that changed over the years? With, could you, you could bet big money in the past and can't now? Or what? Yes, years ago the, the prices were rather small and uh, they would uh, filter out the, the betting and they were more likely to get the bet in years ago than they are today. Why is it that bookmakers won't take big bets on fights today? Do they worry about the fights being fixed? Uh, what, are, what are they worrying about? They worry, I would imagine they worry about uh, fights uh, being one-sided. I don't know uh, as far as being fixed, but some of the fights are total mismatches and uh, they really wouldn't want to get involved in the, in the, in the action of it. And there's no way to establish odds, is that right, when you got a mismatch? Well, they do, but they won't take big money. They'll take small money, 1000 2000 maybe 5000 maybe even 10000 if you find a fairly large bookmaking operation. But I really don't believe that they would go overboard in, uh, bet, uh, with bets on. When did that change? What time period? And what caused it to change? I They've would imagine one-sided one fights, have they not? But I would imagine that they walked away. When we walked away, when organized crime walked away from the boxing industry, I believe our betting uh, uh, slowed down. I, I believe the whole thing stopped in, in that area. When did organized crime walk away from the boxing industry? In the time when Rocky Marciano and people like that were involved, uh, our people, meaning my people, were involved. And uh, we had uh, uh, closer ties to boxing, and I would imagine there was a lot more betting and a lot more situations. Bookmaking and bookmakers, I think, became a little more sophisticated. There's even some tracks, horse, horse betting races, and some tracks that they would stay away from and they wouldn't take action on. There is also some games that they wouldn't take action on. But uh, uh, they might take action on, uh, if you wanted to call a knockout, which round or something like that, which would make the bet very, very uh, hard and complicated. And what, what were the ventures that were so profitable that, that organized crime basically decided to walk away uh, from, uh, from boxing after the Marciano era? What, what, uh, what things shifted in organized crime then? It, was that when organized crime started getting into narcotics? Or what, what were the things that were so lucrative that organized crime lo lost interest in boxing? I believe at that time organized crime uh, became more sophisticated. We got into unions construction, shipping, garment, garbage, and uh, they, they became a lot more lucrative than uh, the boxing industry. Uh, prices were very, very small. Would that have been in the 1950 time frame, 50s, 50s 60s? 60s, yes, that's why I right, said in the right. 60s and before. Right. What, uh, when did organized crime get back into boxing? Well, over a period of time recently, uh, we've had an interest, uh, again, talking about my own family, uh, going down to Gleason's gym, uh, I met some fighters and tried to put something together. I had conversation with John Gotti and myself, and uh, John had urged me to see if we can reach out 
and put together some uh, possible gyms or promoters or fights and see if we can get back involved in the boxing industry. Uh, in that period, I found out that we would be able to reach uh, certain people uh, who are rather successful in the boxing industry. And I felt that given enough time, uh, we would be able to go back into it. And what time frame, during what time frame was that when you, you had these discussions with John? This Gattie? was a, a while, maybe a year, maybe a little bit more before I was arrested uh, and, and stopped, maybe even a little bit before that. So it's been in the last five years then? Yes. What kind of uh, payoff did you expect and anticipate from getting back involved? You were going to get a certain percentage of the purses? Is that how you were going to get paid? Well, there's a lot of different benefits from it. Uh, we were, at one point, I myself negotiated to buy Gleason's Gym in Brooklyn because it had a name and a reputation. Uh, we would probably start off with getting a gym. Uh, we would have some trainers like an Al Cerdo, Bring McGurk, or other people to train there. If the prices became very big and lucrative uh, when you get into the bracket of a half a million and better, we would be able to chew up some of the money within the gym through training expenses, not only just a direct kickback, but through uh, training expenses, uh, by putting people to work at that particular point in his corner, uh, for promotional, for many, many reasons. And then we also felt that uh, some of the fighters would have been good, aside from just the money, uh, when some of our people were in trouble and at trials, we will be able to bring some of them down at the trial to lend support to the people who are on trial so that some of the juries would be impressed on people who were there and maybe sway some of the juries. There was a lot of different reasons why uh, we thought it would be good. Uh, contacts, connections with uh, Trump, Steve Wynn, or anybody in that capacity. We wouldn't just stop strictly, our eyes wouldn't stop strictly at boxing once we got into the circle. So you wanted to use this for a broader, more pervasive influence then? Well, we wouldn't stop strictly at boxing. We would put somebody, if I was able to start it, we would have put, probably put a captain in our family in charge of that boxing industry. And once we had a foothold in it, yes, we would have branched off in as many areas uh, as we could have. I understand that both Buddy McGirt and uh, Snipes attended parts of John Gotti's trial. Do you know whether they were asked to do so? And if so, uh, who, who would have asked them? Well, again, it would have been in McGirt's case, it would have been Al Cerdo. It would have been uh, John Gotti to reach Jojo Carrazzo, who would have asked uh, Al Cerdo to bring McGirt down to the trial, that it would look good. Uh, as far as Ronaldo Snipes, he was close to me. I don't really know who asked him at that particular point. Thank you very much. Senator Rawl. In answer to a question to the chairman, you stated there were certain people in boxing who you thought you could reach, and that's one of the reasons you went back into boxing. Who were those people that you thought you could reach? Well, in some of our conversations, uh, when we try to set up the fight with Ronaldo Snipes and Damiani to reach uh, Donald Trump, 
We reach an entertainer, his name is Jimmy Roselli. Jimmy Roselli has a brother-in-law who's a heavyweight gambler and gambles in Atlantic City. And we use that resource to get to a, a Donald Trump. Uh, we know that uh, Lou Duva was close to people in the Genovese family. I really don't know if he's with these people, but we do know that he has relationships with some of those people. And we would be able to reach him. Uh, Marvin Hagler was very, very close with uh, the Petroselli brothers. Uh, we believed that uh, one of them might even be a made member of one of the New England families. But they were his uh, trainers, and we would be able to reach them. Uh, at one point, we reached out for uh, Don King, who uh, gave us a message back that uh, he had problems with uh, the government and problems with taxes, and he didn't think it was uh, the right time to meet. And uh, we reached uh, Raymond Patriarca from a New England family who would reach a Cleveland family. And uh, they had access to uh, Don King, seemed like uh, some control over Don King. And uh, they would explain to him at the next request to meet him, uh, for John Gotti and myself, that it would be in his best interest that he would uh, meet with us. And uh, we knew that Nicky Scafo had some interest in some fighters and other families around the country. Uh, there's a guy named Andrew Russo, who is a captain in the Colombo family, who has some, some sort of tie to uh, Vito Antifumo. So knowing this base knowledge, we felt that if we went back in, some of these places is areas that we could have got into. When I met with Joey Curtis in Las Vegas, uh, he told me that he knew uh, Steve Wynn personally and uh, asked me if the Ronaldo Snipes Damiani fight would come off. Uh, maybe we could even talk with uh, Steve Wynn. So I, I did realize that we were able to reach different areas and different people. Now, uh You've used the term with, uh, reach, made. Can you explain a, exactly what you mean by the terms when you say you testify about being with a particular organized crime family? What, what does that mean generally and specifically? Ask, let me ask you that first. Well, when you're with an organized crime family or a made member in a family, uh, the maid member goes to his captain and puts you on record that you're with him and our family. Uh, his benefits, whatever connections, like I had just mentioned, we have, he can have. Uh, if any other family within the country, or out of the country for that matter, would ever try and move in on him, muscle in on him, it uh, couldn't happen. He was already on record as being with us. And he would be under our uh, protection, our umbrella, so to speak. But he wouldn't be made. No, no, he, uh, a made member is, is, a, is another stage when a man, after a period of years, is with somebody. Uh, 
and is brought into uh, a meeting and uh, is given the oath and becomes a made member. He's a full member, in other words. He's a blood member. Blood, a blood member. Yes. And, and, and what do you mean by the word uh, reach? Well, reach, if we don't know Donald Trump himself, we have ways to reach him. And it's just a, it's just a term I'm using. Otherwise, we would use Jimmy Roselli or Jimmy Roselli's brother-in-law or uh, Bobby Sasso, who controls uh, uh, 282 uh, Union in uh, uh, New York. And uh, Donald Trump obviously does a lot of construction. And if Bobby Sasso, the president of 282, the Teamsters, who is with our family, would reach uh, Donald Trump and tell him that uh, we were interested in a meeting with him. When I say we, I don't mean me or, uh, or John Gotti. Uh, I don't know if Trump would meet us, uh, but it would open the door for a meeting with Snipes' manager or Damiani's manager or whoever we put in front of this thing to make it look uh, legitimate. After a while, myself and John Gotti and people like us would probably uh, take a back seat to somebody who's a little bit cleaner. Now, you, you said you know that McGirt is with the Gambino family because Carrozza put it on the record with Peter Gotti. What does it mean to put something on record? Well, when a man, when a man is a made member, uh, he goes to his captain, which is his uh, supervisor right above him. Uh, he goes to him and he puts it on record with him on what he's doing, what businesses he has, who he has with him. This goes on record with his captain. His captain will bring it up to the administration. So ultimately the boss has a good idea what the family has in many different uh, industries, what contacts, who has within the family so that if I wanted to get into boxing or if we wanted to get into boxing, we would know immediately that uh, we can call for Pete Gotti to send for JoJo. We know we would be able to get Al Cerdo and Bunny McGirt through that avenue. If a different captain, let's assume, I'm just using this as an example, was close with a Luduva, we would reach that captain to reach a Luduva. But ultimately, the boss and the administration would know uh, who has what? It's just a matter of putting it, that's what we mean by putting it on record. Uh, you mentioned Peter Gotti, who, who is he? Peter Gotti is uh, John Gotti's brother, but more importantly, he's a captain within uh, our family. Now, is, is it possible that Buddy McGirt did not know that part of his earnings were going to organized crime? It's very possible, Senator. Very possible. Yes. Now, you testified that several meetings were held to settle a dispute between the Gambino and Buffalino families concerning who owned parts of boxer Buddy McGirt's contract. I'd like you to watch an FBI surveillance uh, videotape from November 15, 1989 and identify, if you can, the three individuals shown on this tape. You have to look, I think, at this screen here.
You want me to answer, Senator Huso? Yes, if you would, please. The one in the, in the middle, I believe, to be Eddie Scandria. The one on the right is me, and the one on the left is uh, Jojo Carrazzo. Now, the, these are the individuals who were involved in the dispute concerning which one owned part of McGirt's contract. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Do you recognize the location shown by this videotape? That's Mulberry Street, Manhattan. It's the, Ra it's the Ravenite Club, which is the headquarters for the Gambino family, one of the headquarters for the Gambino family. Now, why, why were you out walking uh, rather than ins inside of the club discussing the matter? Of course, we be believe that the FBI had electronic surveillance in a lot of different areas, so when we talked, we usually took what we called a walk talk. Now, we didn't believe it would be picked up by uh, electronic surveillance, was or this cameras one, for that matter. Was this one of the meetings concerning which organized crime, which uh, organized crime family owned a piece of McGirt's contract? Yes, it was. Now, how do you know that this particular videotape depicts one of the McGirt meetings? I have never met with uh, Eddie Scandry about anything other than McGirt I I before or after. So that was the only meeting you had with The only Stan. meetings I had with him pertained to uh, Al Cerdo and McGirt. Now, did John Gotti tell you why he decided that McGirt belonged to the Gambino organized family crime? He believed it belonged to our family on my, uh, on my decision by overhearing uh, uh, Jojo Carrazzo and Eddie Scandria. Hearing the story, uh, I advised him that he belonged with our family, and uh, that, that's how he based his decision. In other words, John told you that JoJo paid Eddie to walk away from McGirt? No, in meeting uh, JoJo Carrazzo, I told me that uh, he had paid, at, at one time earlier, Eddie Scandria was involved with Buddy McGirt. And uh, they, they both were involved. And at one point, they weren't getting along. And Jojo Carrazzo paid, I believe it was $5,000, for uh, Eddie Scandry to walk away. They weren't getting along. And Eddie Scandry seemed to be happy to take the 5000 and walk away. Uh, time after that, uh, he seemed to be doing very, very well in boxing. Uh, status was building. The purses were building. and. Uh, he seemed to come back into play and wanted to be involved. He admitted that he did take money, but he said that he took the money from old monies that would do. Uh, Jojo showed the prices that he fought for, and there really, really was uh, no money involved. And uh, there's no way he could have paid 5000 or better uh, for backed up money, which, which came to hundreds. And, uh, I believed Jojo was telling this truth, and uh, I, this is what I told John. Now you uh, stated in your opening testimony that you were re released by the Colombo family to the Gambino family. What did you mean by that? Well, in that time, I wasn't a made member. I was on record. <clears throat> I was on record. I was an associate of the Colombo family. I wasn't a made member. 
and I was put on record with uh, their family. The Once you're on record, uh, you, you belong to that family, and it takes an official release from that family to, uh, for you to leave. Uh, thank you. My time is up. Senator Cohen or Senator McCain? Senator McCain. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Gravano, for your testimony. It's very interesting. Um, in part of your testimony, you talked about a referee named Joey Curtis that could move Sipes up in the World Boxing Council rankings. Yes, sir. Uh, and that's the outfit that's head by, headed by Mr. Jose Solomon, I believe. I really don't know who heads that uh, organization. Uh, you are a, you ha are a fight fan, though. Uh, yes, I am. And you, have you noticed in the past on other occasions that someone has moved up in the WBC rankings in time for a fight and then that person disappears or drops way down again? Have you seen that happen before? Well, it's common knowledge. I'm not surprised by it. I don't really follow that part of it, but it's, it's basically common knowledge that it can be done. I wasn't sure at that point which sanctioning body did it because I really wasn't involved. Mm. Joey Curtis made me aware of this uh, sanctioning body. I don't really know if any other sanctioning body does it or not. But it was common knowledge that it could be done? Yeah, it's not uh, something that's a major secret. Um, if you, you mentioned two names, Vito Antifermo and, and uh, Marvin Hagler as both having uh, mob ties or, or have some, their people having some connection. Is that correct? Yes. And they both fought a couple of fights, so that might have been uh, interesting. Could I ask you um, a couple of other names? Uh, Emmanuel Stewart, any, any connection there? I know the name, but I don't know of any connection with Mr. him. Mr. Duva? Mr. Lou, Lou Duva, Duva I, uh, I understood to be with, or close with anyway, uh, people in the Genovese family. If we were going to go back into uh, boxing, we would be able to reach uh, people in the Genovese family. We would probably reach their boss, who was uh, Chin, and uh, uh, find out uh, what could be done. We never got to that point. And Mr. Uh, Don King, you mentioned earlier, had been approached, but uh, had been negative in response. You have no other information about his connections. I know earlier on, a lot of years ago, this is before John Gotti and myself took over the family, that Don King had reached out for Paul Castellano, and uh, Paul Castellano didn't want to meet with him for whatever reason. Uh, so I, I knew he was around. I knew he had some ties. And when we were considering Snipes and Damiani, we were considering a possible conversation with him uh, for promotional reasons, for obvious reasons. I mean, he, he literally just about controls a good part of uh, boxing. Um, which brings me, but the connection with either Mr. Wynn or Mr. Trump would have to, would, you don't know of no direct connection, except that they did have to do business with these individuals that control the majority of the best fighters. Is that right? Is They've that, done uh, nothing wrong as far as I know, and they're not with anybody as far as I know. They're just in that business, and they would have to deal with people we would have to reach the people that they would have to deal with in order to talk with them. Good. I, I think it's important to make it clear, Mr. Chairman, about some of these individuals. We don't want to tar people with, with a brush here. Uh, you said in your statement that uh, uh, in the case of the Ronaldo Snipes Damiani fight, you said, I'm sure that we would have had no problem in convincing Snipes to lose. Well, why do you make that statement? 
Mr. Gravano. Uh, I myself was very close with Snipes. Snipes was broke at that particular point. If we were able to set up a big payday fight, <clears throat> I would have told him that there was uh, X amount of dollars in a purse. I probably would have approached him with some cash under the table. And uh, he was shunned by Don King. He was on the outskirts. He couldn't get any more fights. He was just about over the hill at 30 some odd years old. And I believe I had enough of a relationship with him to convince him in, in that respect. And if he would have agreed, I'm sure uh, he would have lived up to it. At the end of your statement, you say now because the size of the purses has gotten so big over the past 20 years, organized crime is more and more interested in getting back into it. Do you have any uh, uh, specifics of, uh, of that interest? Well, for a long time, it wasn't even talked about. And, uh, through the years, it was becoming more and more talked about, uh, again, with the, with the Lundover and names like that within the industry, uh, it popped up. I wasn't really in the boxing uh, industry. It was more of a hobby to me, and I heard it on the outskirts. My expertise in the Gambino family was in construction, and I dealt with that. But uh, as the prices got bigger and bigger, uh, not only did John Gotti and myself start to look at it, but I'm sure in conversations that I've had with people, more and more people were looking at it. At these big fights, you'd have the opportunity to see many friends and adversaries? Yes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. McCain, Senator Cohen. Just a couple of uh, follow-up questions uh, with respect to Mr. Uh, Snipes. You indicated that you were sure that had Snipes uh, given his word, he would have lived up to it. Yes. Right? Now, what deterrent do you have if they don't live up to it? Let's suppose he got in the ring, he felt pretty good, and suddenly victory is uh, a couple of punches away. Does he take a look out into the ring and uh, decide that he sees you there, or maybe John Gotti or somebody else, and uh, uh, even though he smells victory and the other uh, fighter may um, have unintentionally walked into a, a roundhouse punch, um, what deterrent exists, uh, either expressly or implicitly, uh, to make sure that someone lives up to a, uh, an agreement? I believe our whole background, John Gotti's and mine, our reputation, yes. Right. Now, what deterrent do you have if they don't live up to it? Let's suppose he got in the ring, he felt pretty good, and suddenly victory is uh, a couple of punches away. Does he take a look out into the ring and uh, decide that he sees you there, or maybe John Gotti or somebody else, and uh, uh, even though he smells victory and the other uh, fighter may um, have unintentionally walked into a, a roundhouse punch, um, what deterrent exists, uh, either expressly or implicitly, uh, to make sure that someone lives up to a, uh, an agreement? I believe our whole background, John Gotti's and mine, our reputation of what we did and what happened. I believe if he would have knocked them out by accident, he would have picked them up. <laughs> I, I, I tried not to make it appear that was a rhetorical question. Uh, is it, is it uh, clear in the, uh, the boxing industry as such or the profession uh, that um, if a boxer, well, let me put it this way, have you ever heard of a boxer being threatened uh, with injury because uh, he was unwilling to give uh, organized crime a cut uh, of his winnings? I have never heard that personally, and uh, 
I know that's talked about not only in boxing but a lot of industries and I, I don't find that that really happens all that much. Uh, I believe it's, it's, uh, it's a two-sided greed. Uh, uh, organized crime, from what I've seen, has a history of uh, sharing. A lot of contractors, which relate slightly to the construction industry, came to us for uh, union favors and basically for greed because they made more money by coming to us. It wasn't something that we had to force them over. And uh, along with this, I happen to like Ronaldo Snipes and had a high respect for him as a fighter. And uh, in a strange way, I think I would have been fair as far as giving him his last hurrah and some money. And it also would have met my purpose with uh, Damiani to uh, uh, look so good and, and beat somebody as classy as a fighter as uh, I believe Snipes was. You mentioned uh, that uh, McGirt uh, may very well not know that he's associated with um, organized crime even, even uh, indirectly, is that right? Yes. You say it's very possible. Uh, is it well known that uh, Mr. Soto is associated with uh, organized crime? Or yes. So you can have a fighter who has someone who is an um, advisor, manager, promoter, who's known to associate with organized crime, and you basically are being handled by that person, and yet you would not know that uh, any of your earnings are going through the, uh, the money chain or the money tree as such uh, to um, the roots of organized crime? Sure, yes. T tell me how that works. Uh, uh, apparently, you indicated McGirt went to the trial of John Gotti? Yes. Now, when someone, uh, when someone goes to a trial of someone who is known uh, to be a uh, top uh, person in a uh, organized crime family, uh, does that imply knowledge that, uh, that one is, uh, his earnings are in any way uh, going in that direction? I mean, in other words, you've got a no, manager. No, but it's a tactic of ours, Senator. Pardon? I'm sorry, did I interrupt? No, no, that's all right. It, it's a tactic of ours. Uh, I believe there was a made member of... Uh, Johnny DeGilio, who was in the Genovese family, who was on trial, a federal trial, I believe, in New Jersey, where uh, Muhammad Ali and a few people came to the trial. And what I believe it does is that if you have black jurors and you see uh, Sugar Ray Leonard or a Muhammad Ali or a Joe Frazier, you uh, have a warm spot for these people, which is basically... Right. No, I understand the tactic, what I was wondering about, the fighter himself. Uh, Al Cerdo or somebody says, uh, uh, we'd like to have you go to the trial of John Gotti. Well, I'm sure Al Cerdo knows the motive. I don't really know if uh, Buddy McGurk understands right. or knows the motive. Well, uh, motive. All right. See, I, I, I say that because I'm not in those conversations. Right. I don't know what Al Cerdo tells him. He could be conning him and saying, you know, he thinks the world, he has a fighter, uh, why don't you come down and see him. Okay. I don't know exactly that's fair what. Enough. No, that's fair enough. I'm just trying to find out how the money flows. Perhaps you could at least trace for us. The, the money how, would how, flow. What happens when a fighter earns the, the purse and then the manager um, gets, or promoter gets a, a piece of that? Where, how does the money go through the, uh, the family? How does it trace the money for us, if you would? Well, it would go through uh, the trainer or manager, or trainer manager. He has a percentage of the fighter. He would get a percentage of that. One of the ways, which there's a few ways, would be that uh, when he gets his check and he cashes it, he sends his 
piece up, whether, whatever his deal may be, 20, 30, 40, 50%, whether he's partners with John Gotti, whatever his specific deal is, he'll send his end of the cash up after taxes. because he obviously can't duck that. But there's other ways where we could cheat or duck, if I could use those terms. We would set up a gym, if we were talking about real big money, then we could talk about uh, padding, training expenses, we could put people to work, we can go into promotional, we can go into a lot of areas to absorb part of that uh, big purse, especially when you're talking about purses that go into the tens of millions of dollars. We, can, we would really be able to, uh, uh, I don't know the words, but we would really be able to lunge into that. What happens when a fighter uh, finds out that uh, in, in some way his earnings are going into uh, organized crime and he wants to break uh, away from that family? Uh, does the family seek to uh, prevent that from taking place? Well, traditionally, we've been giving people a hard time with that uh, situation, Senator. We, we, we're not too fond of them walking away from us. I'm sorry? We're not too fond of them walking away, and we would uh, traditionally uh, give them a hard time. Uh, I don't know how far. That would be up to uh, each person and each particular crime family what they would do. So once uh, organized crime has an interest in a fighter, even though that fighter may not know that uh, he is uh, owned or at least uh, influenced by organized crime, he can't walk away? Well, I wouldn't say that. If his manager was with us, he couldn't walk away. If the fighter really knew nothing, right. uh, I don't really know how we can go and uh, go after him, except for that he would lose his power base and connections and we would try and cut him off that way. If he, he himself shook our hand and made a deal with us, it would be a lot harder for him to walk away. So you might try, if he didn't know he were in any way associated, you might try to perhaps uh, reduce his ratings or rankings? We would use whatever tactics we can use uh, short of violence because he really don't know what he's involved with. If he knew what he was involved with, we would use just about any uh, tactic, including violence. Okay. Now, last uh, year, the subcommittee had some testimony alleging that Bob Lee who was then the uh, New Jersey Deputy Boxing Commissioner, taken a bribe in order to expedite an application for a boxing promoter's uh, license. Uh, are you aware of any other instance in which um, there's corruption among the uh, boxing commissions in uh, New Jersey, New York, or anywhere in this country? You talked about the WBC and operating out of Mexico and trying to uh, influence the, the rankings there. What about here in the United States? No, I don't know any uh, situations like that, Senator. And one final question. If you were still a member of the Gambino family, could you tell me or us uh, what action by the, uh, the federal or state agencies it would take to convince you that it was time to move away from participating in boxing matches? In other words, is there anything uh, that the federal government could do to discourage organized crime from uh, its association with uh, boxing? I think the price is very small. <laughs> No. Make the purse small. And so no amount of federal regulation uh, per se is going to deter uh, the influence as long as the money is there? I don't believe so, Senator. No. Thank you. That's all I have, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Cohen. Senator Roth, do you have any other questions? Uh, yes, I do have a few more. Uh, carrying on with the question of Mr. Cohen, uh, have the state commissions been effective in regulating 
boxy in, boxing insofar as the mob is concerned? I don't even think we know that they exist, to be honest with you. I, uh, they're, they're not that effective because they don't bother us and they don't hinder us in any of our movements and I've never heard them involved in any of the conversations that we would have to do this, this or this to go around them. So I, I, I really don't, uh, I don't even know what they do, basically. If the uh, federal government, uh, by one means or another, became involved in regulation, would that make a difference? Would the mob be uh, more circumspect, more concerned about being involved in, in boxing? No. Make no difference at all? No. Do you, uh, you testified that Joey Curtis told you he could move up your boxer's ranking in the WBC for five to $10,000. Joey Curtis has categorically denied to staff that anyone like that, that anything like that ever happened. Are you certain of your testimony? Senator, I can only say what I know. Uh, I'm not, I can't really comment on uh, what they say and what they don't say. Uh, I can only comment that what I say is the truth, uh, and I only say exactly what I know. And that was that jo Joey Curtis told you he could move up your boxer's ranking in the WBC for five to $10,000, is that correct? Yes. Do you recall Joey Curtis visiting the Ravenite Social Club? Yes, I do. Now, Mr. Curtis admits visiting the Social Club, but says it's open to any member of the public. Is that correct? No, it's a private club. It's the Gambino headquarters. And uh, if you want me to explain it slightly, there's a brick wall with almost no windows, a steel door, with at any given time 10, 15 guys standing outside smoking some cigars and stuff, and I don't really think that that's a sign that we're open to the public. <laughs> <laughs> An attorney uh, for Reynaldo Snipes, his uh, former manager, Sal Pasquale, advised that they would invoke the Fifth Amendment if called to testify here today. They did admit in a staff interview that they attended a meeting with you at Atlantic City in which a future boxing match was discussed. But they claimed the meeting was set up in the spur of the moment and not planned in, in advance. Is this true? Well, I don't believe, uh, Senator, that you can set up, you can walk into uh, Donald Trump's uh, boxing staff unannounced and uh, have a meeting uh, that you were going to fight for a, uh, a championship fight. It would have to be something that was set up. I didn't know Mark Edis from a hole in the wall uh, prior to that, and I don't see how that could be done. And uh, I'm sure that uh, Mark Edis, who really did, and I don't believe did anything wrong, knows of the meeting and knows it was, it was set up. I mean, I just didn't walk in off the street. Now, are, are other Gambino family members involved in boxing gems? Excuse me, Senator? Are other uh, members of the Gambino family involved in boxing gems? But what about uh, John Gotti, Jr.? 
Well, there's a, there's a gym that we're involved with, a Tommy Gallagher has. He was a longtime friend of uh, John Gotti. I believe now he uh, has a gym in Queens uh, and is very, very close or with John Jr. And I believe his gym is right next to, uh, the, right around the Bergen Hunt and Fish Club in Queens. I believe he looked for some funding and some backing and, uh, and found it. My, my last question is, some people might ask, what difference does it make if organized crime owns a piece of a box? Or, but isn't it true that organized crime, even when involved in a legitimate business, uh, tries to cheat, take advantage, to cut corners? Does it make a difference if, if uh, the mob owns a piece of the boxer? Well, again, we do have that habit of cheating a little bit. And uh, if we have this, we use it as contacts in not only boxing, but a lot of other areas that we look at. We look past just strictly to boxing. When we meet, uh, whether it be uh, officials of, uh, of uh, state or, uh, or uh, a person like Trump, the, the conversations might start to drift from boxing into construction or whatever we felt uh, we could do. If somebody went to John and said that he wanted to buy a condo in Trump Tower uh, and we were talking to him about boxing, I'm sure that a week later or a month later, the conversation would start to uh, change into uh, buying that condo or doing the sheetrock in one of the buildings that he's doing or the plumbing or the electrical or and, and this is uh, what we've done in the past in a lot of industries fairly well. We walked away from the boxing, but again, as it started to build uh, money-wise and power-base-wise, uh, we would get back into it for a, lot of, a host of different reasons. Uh, because of the big bucks now involved in boxing, should we expect more involvement on the part of uh, organized crime? in boxing? I believe so. They'll go where the money is. Excuse me? They'll go where the money is. Yes. That's all the questions I have, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Gabano, one, one final question. I believe in your statement, uh, or in answer to one of the early questions, you mentioned that there was someone in Cleveland who had access to Don King. Could you tell us who that was and what kind of access? I don't know who the specific person was when I said that I was referring to the Cleveland family. The Cleveland family has certain ties to Don King and uh, Raymond Patriarca, who uh, is the boss in uh, Providence, uh, told us that he knew of this and he can reach the Cleveland people to uh, tell them to make an, have Don King meet us. Any other questions, Senator Rawls, Senator Cohen, Senator McCain? Okay. I think that's all, Mr. Gabano. We appreciate your cooperation with the subcommittee. You've been very helpful. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll have uh, security take Mr. Gabano out, and we'll I'll ask everyone to remain seated until that occurs.
Our next witnesses today will be Staff Counsel Leighton Lloyd and Staff Counsel Steve Levin of the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. They have conducted a very extensive investigation into professional boxing. This afternoon they will provide us with uh, more of the results of that investigation. I'll ask both of you to hold up your right hand before you take your seat, take the oath. You swear the testimony you give for the subcommittee of the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. I do. Thank you. Please proceed. Thank you, Senator. When the Senate last looked into professional boxing over 30 years ago, it found a nationwide conspiracy between organized crime and members of the boxing industry to control the major boxing contests in the United States. Boxing greats such as Jake LaMotta testified that they were forced to cooperate with underworld figures to have the opportunity to compete for championship titles. The nature of organized crime involvement in box the boxing industry has changed since the 1940s and 1950s. Rather than attempting to profit from complete control of boxing, as was the case 30 years ago, Organized crime now attempts to profit by controlling individual boxers and managers or by exercising influence with regard to an individual promoter. Today, members and associates of organized crime also participate in boxing as managers, advisors, and investors. As a result, organized crime profits from and affects the sport of boxing. The primary attraction for organized crime is, of course, the large sums of money that can be made. As Senator Roth stated, a boxer can make in one event what it took a boxer a lifetime to earn 30 years ago. In addition, the boxing industry is ideally suited for infiltration by organized crime because it is ineffectively regulated. State boxing regulators make almost no effort to exclude organized crime members and associates from participating in boxing, even where state regulations explicitly prohibit such involvement. Our investigation has uncovered evidence that a number of organized crime figures are heavily involved with several well-known boxers. We do not, however, make the claim that all, or even most, boxers are connected with organized crime. Very little investigation has been done in this area by law enforcement entities. We have, moreover, found no evidence to indicate that organized crime currently exerts the type of influence over the sport of boxing that it did in the 1940s and 1950s. We concentrated our investigation on three case studies involving the organized crime connections of two former and one current world champion. Each of these boxers has denied that they are knowingly controlled or influenced by organized crime. Whether these boxers are unwitting dupes or willing participants with organized crime figures is unclear. These three case studies illustrate three forms of organized crime involvement in boxing and also represent three examples of how the current regulatory structure has failed to keep organized crime out of the boxing industry. On the far right of the chart, we have the name of former IBF super middleweight champion, Iran Barkley. Barkley has held WBC middleweight title and has had a number of high profile big money fights. Barkley testified at a subcommittee deposition that he currently does not have a manager of record, but that he does have several unlicensed advisors. One of these advisors is Lenny Minuto. 
Minuto is classified by several law enforcement agencies as an associate of the Lucchese crime family. There's additional information that he's had past and possibly current affiliations with the Gambino and Genovese families. Minuto is believed to be active in the Gampa crew of the Lucchese family at this time. Minuto also has a criminal record, including seven gambling convictions and one conviction for bribing a public official. And I'd like to note, Senator, before going any further, that enlisting any person on this chart as having organized crime connections, we have followed the past PSI standard of requiring corroborating information from at least two separate law enforcement agencies. And in the case of Mr. Minuto, we also have an affidavit submitted by Mr. Alphonse Diarco, the current, the former underboss of the Lucchese family, indicating Mr. Minuto's Lucchese connections. And at this time, I'd like to offer for introduction a copy of the Diarco affidavit. Barkley testified at deposition that Lenny Minuto assists him with contract negotiations and with personal investments. According to Barkley, Minuto receives 10% of Barkley's earnings, which would equal roughly $100,000 for Barkley's most recent fight against James Tony. We also have other evidence, however, indicating that Minuto received as much as $225,000 from the Tony fight alone. The Barkley and Minuto relationship is illustrative of how organized crime figures are involved in the boxing industry as, as paid, unlicensed advisors. The practice of calling oneself an advisor appears to be an attempt to avoid state licensure requirements, despite the fact that so-called advisors often fit statutory definitions of managers. Most states have very broad definitions of a boxing manager. For example, in New Jersey, a manager is defined as anyone who directly or indirectly directs or administers the affairs of a boxer, or anyone who is entitled to 10% or more of a boxer's earnings. One obvious reason that Lenny Minuto and others like him might wish to avoid licensure is the fear of being denied a license and thereby excluded from participating in boxing because of their criminal records of organized crime associations. The fear, however, is largely unfounded since state boxing regulators do not, as a rule, require that inquire into the criminal history or background of their licensure applicants. The boxer represented in the middle of the chart is WBA cruiserweight champion Bobby Chez. Chez has had a long career with his most profitable fights taking place in the last few years. In 1981, Chez's father sold the right to Chez's future boxing earnings to Andrew Lakari and Andrew Dombrowski. Under the agreement, Lakari and Dombrowski were to receive a percentage of Chez's future earnings in exchange for $300,000. Initially, Lakari and Dombrowski were to receive 26% of Chez's earnings for five years and then 5% for an additional five years. The agreement has, however, been modified twice so that Lakari and Dombrowski could continue to receive 26% of Chez's boxing earnings. Chez testified at the subcommittee's August hearing that he voluntarily extended the boxing agreement because Lakari and Dombrowski had not gotten their investment back. The most, the most recent agreement, which is oral, apparently remains in force today. Lakari is classified by several law enforcement entities as a Lucchese soldier and has been alleged to be a part of what was the Asaturo crew of the Lucchese family. He is also identified as such in the previously mentioned affidavit of former Lucchese acting boss Alphonse Diarco. Dombrowski is classified as a Lucchese associate. At a subcommittee deposition, Lakari denied membership in or involvement with organized crime. Lucari did, however, acknowledge personal contact with the alleged members of the Asaturo crew. 
Lakari and Dombrowski are not licensed to participate in boxing. State boxing regulations generally do not require that passive investors, such as Lakari and Dombrowski, be licensed to participate in boxing, or that, investor, that investments such as the one held by Lakari and Dombrowski be recorded or disclosed. The boxer on the far left of the chart is James Buddy McGirt. McGirt has had two world titles and recently paid a purse of $1 million in his unsuccessful de defense of his WBC title. McGirt's relationship with organized crime exists on two levels. The first level is McGirt's management team of Al Cerdo and Stuart Wiener. Law enforcement has long considered Cerdo an associate of the Genovese and Gambino crime families. I just wanted to clarify for my own purposes. When you put a chart up there like that, you're not uh, suggesting that any of the fighters involved uh, know uh, that they are involved uh, in any way with organized crime? Is that That's correct? right, Senator. And we don't take a position on that whatsoever because we right. have no evidence. And with respect to the second line of individuals, you're not, are you making allegations about uh, any of the individuals involved there that they are actively involved? Yes, Senator. We have law information from law enforcement, at least two cooperating law enforcement agencies, as, as we require under our internal rules, that they do, in fact, have organized crime connections. I, uh, I thought I would run and vote if, if you stay, and then we could sure. keep it going. Go ahead. I'm sorry. McGirt's relationship with organized crime exists on two levels. The first level is McGirt's management team of Al Cerdo and Stuart Wiener. Law enforcement has long considered Cerdo an associate of the Genovese and Gambino crime families. Wiener is an associate of the Gambino family and has been recently named in an indictment handed down by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office as a member of the Jojo Carrazzo crew of the Gambino family. Cerdo and Wiener each receive at least 33 and a third percent manager's cut of McGirt's boxer, boxing earnings. Cerdo and Wiener share various management responsibilities, yet only Cerdo is licensed as a manager at this time. Wiener has not been licensed to participate in boxing since 1991, when he was licensed as a second in Nevada. Although Wiener has avoided licensure, his relationship with McGirt is not secret. Both McGirt and Cerdo at subcommittee depositions acknowledge that Wiener serves as a co-manager to McGirt. In addition, Wiener has also received payments due McGirt directly from McGirt's promoter, Madison Square Garden. Wiener has also, also has check writing authority on the account of Alfred Certissimo Inc., the company that receives all of McGirt's boxing earnings. Wiener is clearly acting as an unlicensed co-manager in violation of several different state regulations. The second level of McGirt's involvement with organized crime is the secret ownership by Gambino soldier Joseph Jojo Carrazzo of some percentage of McGirt's earnings. Carrazzo's ownership of McGirt was first revealed to the subcommittee by Salvatore Gravano, who just testified about the relationship. Subcommittee depositions of Cerdo and McGirt revealed that Wiener is a personal friend of Carrazzo and that both Cerdo and McGirt were introduced to Carrazzo by Wiener. Cerdo and McGirt both testified under oath that to their knowledge, Carrazzo does not have an ownership interest in McGirt's boxing earnings. Jojo Carrazzo invoked the Fifth Amendment in response to all questions during his subcommittee deposition. Subcommittee staff, with the assistance of the Governmental Accounting Office, conducted a comprehensive analysis of the financial records of Alfred Certissimo Inc., the company controlled by Cerdo and Wiener that holds all of McGirt's earnings. Although we found no direct evidence of payments being made to Carrazzo, we did find a pattern of very questionable payment practices. The exhibit on my right 
represents the flow of funds from McGirt's November 29, 1991 fight against Simon Brown. This exhibit illustrates how all money due McGirt goes directly to Alfred Certissimo, Inc. In this case, McGirt's promoter, Madison Square Garden, wrote checks directly to Alfred Certissimo, Inc. for McGirt's purse earnings and training expenses. We also have evidence that Madison Square Garden paid Wiener $40,000 of, of the money owed McGirt in cash, but have, but have been unable to determine if this money has been deposited or how it's been spent. And I'd like to point out that we list a check number there because we initially thought that it was paid by check because we got a check showing the $40,000 payment. We have since discovered that the check was voided and it was never negotiated and the transaction was actually conducted in cash. Although Nevada has a regulation requiring that a boxer be paid directly, McGirt requested that the Nevada Commission waive this regulation so that Alfred Certissimo, Inc. would be paid directly. Since such regulations are intended to lessen the likelihood that a boxer will be cheated by his management, this arrangement is questionable and circumvents the state, the intent of state regulations. One questionable pattern in practice involves the so-called third-party endorser transactions. The exhibit that we're now putting up illustrates this practice. As the exhibit indicates, Stuart Wiener wrote a check for $3,000 to himself, and I'm referring to the top check. Then, as the back of the check indicates, which is right under it, he endorsed the check with his name, and then wrote the third-party endorsement of Alfred Certissimo, Inc. Although it looks like the check was redeposited into Alfred Certissimo, Inc.'s account, the corresponding bank statement does not list a specific $3,000 deposit. Serto testified at his deposition that such checks are, on occasion, converted into cash. Our analysis of Alfred Certissimo, Inc.'s checks, bank statements, and tax records indicate that practically all third-party endorser checks are apparently converted into cash. Over 10% of all checks written on the Alfred Certissimo, Inc. account for a three-year period were handled in this manner. A second questionable pattern involves the practice of writing two separate checks to the same payee on the same day. This practice is illustrated by the same exhibit that we have up now. As you can see, Stuart Wiener wrote two checks to himself on March 31, 1990. Check number 1289, which is on the top, is for $3,000. Check 1291 on the bottom is for $2,170. The $3,000 check was third-party endorsed, leading us to suspect it was converted into cash, and the $2,170 check appears to have been deposited in another account. On eight separate occasions, Stuart Wiener wrote himself two separate checks for significant amounts of money on the same day. On one day, Wiener wrote three separate checks to himself. While this evidence is not conclusive proof of wrongdoing, it clearly provides a ready method for siphoning off large sums of money in the form of cash. In conclusion... Well, how does writing the second one siphon okay. off large amount of money in that case? If he writes a check out to himself and cashes it, uh, and there's a bank's uh, record of it. How is that uh, siphoning off money? Well, Senator, on the bottom, we are, t we are assuming that he might have deposited that into an account, although if it's, if it's his bank, he could have cashed it. We have no idea. I'm saying the top check, which is a third-party endorser check, was likely converted into cash because in our analysis of all the deposits made into Alfred Stissimo, Inc., up against their income reflected on their tax records minus loans, shows that these checks could not have been redeposited or they wouldn't have balanced. And GAO helped us come to the conclusion of that analysis. But that wouldn't apply to the second check, though. We have no idea because we, we, did, not, we did not subpoena Mr. Wiener's bank records. We have no idea if that is the case. 
In conclusion, we have no reason to believe that under the present regulatory structure, anything will change. The current regulatory structure has had over 30 years to rid boxing of organized crime influence and involvement, and it has not done so. We agree with the view of former organized crime member Michael Francis and former FBI agent Joseph Spinelli that the most effective way to rid boxing of organized crime is federal oversight of the industry. And Senator, at this time, I would like to have, I have a list of 40 sealed and some unsealed, mostly unsealed, exhibits that I'd request be admitted to the record at this time? That objection, they'll be admitted to the record. Thank you, and we'll be happy to answer any questions. Well, the first question I would uh, ask you is, in spite of the testimony we had last fall that the, the best way to rid organized crime of involvement in boxing is to have uh, strong federal oversight, uh, we just had someone who was actively involved uh, in organized crime and the boxing profession. He indicated it will make very little difference as long as the money is there. Well, Senator, yeah, do you have any response to that? I think from the people we have talked to in our personal view of staff, I would have to disagree. The federal government did a very good job of, of capturing Mr. Gravano. So I think um, the federal government has done a good job at prosecuting and investigating organized crime. And I think they would do so if they were under, it was under a federal boxing oversight. Okay. Perhaps you can tell us a bit more about the, uh, the function of state licensing boards. Uh, and uh, their relationship to uh, boxing participants and advisors, licensed advisors and unlicensed advisors? Well, as far as unlicensed, unlicensed advisors go, there is no relationship between them and the state regulatory agencies because they, they totally circumvent the licensing process. They are not licensed. They don't put in applications for license. And as far as we can tell, the boxing commissions don't go after them, don't try to force them to be licensed, or don't try to exclude them from boxing if they are, in fact, participating in the sport. Well, do they perform any functions uh, that would otherwise bring them within the scope of state regulation? Yes, Senator. Um, in many cases, they do. I think the examples in our chart, Lenny Minuto is one. If he, in fact, receives 10% of Iran Barkley's boxing earnings, then he is a manager under the New Jersey definition of a manager, anyone who receives 10% or more of a boxer's earnings. And he would therefore have to be licensed as a manager in that state. Other states have very broad definitions of a manager, anyone who helps direct the career of the boxer. He certainly, according to the deposition of Mr. Barkley, is helping to direct his career and would have to be licensed as a manager in that capacity also. Should we have uh, a uniform definition of what constitutes an advisor? Yes, Senator, or what constitutes a manager so it would encompass all of these advisors. Now, Mr. Levin, I think uh, the staff statement indicates there's evidence that Mr. Lenny Menudo may have received as much as $225,000 in connection with Mr. Uh, Barkley's last fight. Do you want to explain the evidence and how you uh, arrived at that figure? Certainly, Senator. You, the fight we're referring to was the Iran Barkley James Tony IBF Super Middleweight Championship fight. In his deposition, Iran Barkley said that he was going to pay Mr. Menudo $100,000 from that fight. In addition, Bob Aram, who was the promoter of that fight, has told us that in order to get Barkley to agree to that fight, he had to agree to a side deal where Aram would pay Menudo $125,000, thus bringing Menudo's total take from that fight to $225,000. Is there any evidence that Mr. Barkley himself knew about this? We have no evidence that Mr. Barkley knew about the uh, well, let me, let me backtrack. 
the deposition of Mr. Barkley was taken prior to the fight. So talking about the $100,000, he was saying that prospectively, that that's what he was going to pay. Uh, with regard to the side deal between Mr. Menudo uh, and, and Mr. Aram, uh, yes, Mr. Aram said that uh, Mr. Barkley was involved with the negotiations and therefore presumably was aware of that side deal also. Okay. Are there any uh, background checks that are currently undertaken for those who apply for uh, licensing to participate in boxing? I think I can answer that, Senator. Um, no. If, if, you if you submit an application to be licensed, you have to fill out a form. It, it, it asks certain questions, but to our knowledge, no one checks the answers. No one checks to see if the individual has a criminal record or has any organized crime involvement. So, well, who should, no, be, who should be in the business of uh, checking backgrounds? Are you suggesting, su suggesting that uh, commissions uh, do that work? Probably not. I, I think law enforcement would probably be the best, best person to do that, much, like, much in the way the Senate does background checks of, of uh, people who are being appointed to positions. They could simply call the local law enforcement or the federal law enforcement and ask if the individual has a criminal record or known association, something like that. And the primary reason that uh, current state-based uh, regulatory systems are not effective is what? Well, I think one of the, the primary reasons, I mean, a lot of the states have very good regulations on the books. The problem is they just don't enforce those regulations. The unlicensed advisor example is a good one because a lot of states have regulations requiring these people be licensed. They just don't enforce those regulations. And the second problem is inconsistency, as you just mentioned. There is a, a man, there's a definition for a manager in every different state. So you may be a manager under one state, but not under the next. And it, it's very confusing. Okay. Uh, could you explain in a little more detail uh, what methodology you use to analyze the financial practices of Alfred uh, Sertis?